From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. everybody to another edition of the groundsman joining me as always the two slackers in chief roger mitchell and giles morgan gentlemen how are you roger everything good in uh, in cover yeah it's very warm the temperature is over 30 we just got a very bad week for the summit because like it's it's an indian summer very warm Charles, and how is, uh, how is southwest London? I'm in the city of London today. It's, it's sweltering hot. Rog, it's interesting you say that. The pictures that I saw of Como that came out of my camera, it sort of looked like the Lake District or something. It didn't really look like <laughs> Como at all. But um, yes, I'm glad you're basking in a sort of late summer. I, on the other hand, am in Scotland, and they have been deluged with biblical rain, which has washed away half the country as far as I can figure out. Yeah, it's absolutely yeah. unbelievable what was happening up there. That's why your hair's looking so clean. Yeah, probably. probably that's The right. water's better up there. Definitely better up there. <laughs> well, the everything's better up here, Roger. Everything's better up here, as you know. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, we have a guest joining us shortly. But before we get to him, Roger, I'm going to ask you to let people know who we're talking about. But before we get to him, what has piqued your interest this week? Gilo, Roger and I did a goal on goal last week. So why don't you kick off? Anything you've seen that's uh, tickled your fancy? Yeah, well, I'm all about the rugby at the moment, um, as you'd expect with the Rugby World Cup. So uh, by the time this show comes out, I'll probably be on a train or just sort of limbering up for a, a weekend. I can't imagine what could possibly go wrong, but um, I'll let you know. I don't think you probably have to anticipate what will go wrong, Giles, because it's all gone wrong many, many times before. and It'll go wrong exactly the same way as this time, as it has all those other times. Well, you know, you, you talk about the rugby, Giles. Roger and I were talking about this. I have to say, I, I just, this World Cup, I, I love my rugby, but it's the first rugby I've watched. Yeah, I mean, I will watch now. But it just hasn't, it's completely passed me by, Giles. Well, and they've got a bit of a problem that the world of rugby is that the haves, if you like, the, the very top teams, Ireland, obviously very strong, France, very strong, New Zealand always, and, and South Africa, are there or thereabouts. But actually the teams that have caught the public's imagination are the Uruguays, the Fijis, the Tongas of this world, Georgia even. Yet the funding that goes into these teams to help them to redress the balance just is still very slow coming forward, which means you've got a game that's massively imbalanced, where really for the casual sports fan, as opposed to the, the rugger bugger, you really only need to, to switch on towards the, the, the latter halves. And that that's such a waste. And I think I know that World Rugby, they're in the middle of right now, that everybody who's anybody in the world of rugby, all the Blazers are congregating in Paris for a congrès de blazer or whatever, jupe maybe. <laughs> no, that's a skirt, isn't it? What's a blazer in France? I'm sure someone will let us know. But I still worry that the game just continues to be, you know, we've talked about sevens and 15 aside for a long time. Sevens has slightly been left sort of, as a, a whimsical extra when actually it could have been the, the sport that embraced the world. And I hope that that will change. But 15 aside in particular is the game. I want to see Tonga in the semifinals. I, the way that Fiji play their rugby, Georgia, for goodness sake, brilliant if you could see those sports evolve. But the whole mess of the game, which Rog has talked to a lot, is that you've got a, a, a massive chasm between the top and the bottom. And even at the top, with the club game in such disarray in certain countries like England, there isn't real balance. So it's a game that is lurching at the moment. And the showcase of the sport, which I suppose every four years is the World Cup and obviously the British Lions Tour when that happens and the Six Nations kind of paper over the reality and that doesn't help because whilst the casual fan can enjoy the top end of the game and think, well, rugby is a brilliant sport, it's great to watch and the women's game is growing, etc. Actually, there are some pretty deep foundations that need to be looked at. And I don't think under the current governance with the many, many, uh, whatever the collective noun is for blazers, a wardrobe of blazers, maybe, 
um, you're, <laughs> you're, you're not necessarily going to get the answer, which is a commercial uh, needs a commercial solution that Roger talks about a lot. I, th- I think it's technically, uh, Charles. It's a <laughs> of blazers. I think that's the. That's the <laughs> thing. But uh, actually, but Charles, you know, you know, I tell you what, what is a big problem is I, I tell you lie. I did actually see half of the England, or as the Aussie commentators call it, Samoa, England Samoa game, and the fact that England are they are so bad. I mean, appalling. It was like a bunch of school kids playing. And the fact that that rugby can get them to within a straightforward victory of the semifinals is absolutely ridiculous, I have to say. Well, anyway. I, be- and I believe they're changing the criteria for the draw. This was something that was done three, four years ago, which has left, a, again, the draw. I mean, Wales in the quarterfinal. And uh, I mean, they're a good side, Wales, but they're not a... They're, in my view, and I say this as a Welshman, I, I don't think they're a semifinal side. Right. Roger, what about you? What have you been uh, gazing at from there in the lake? Or has that just been anti-pasto and the world's best? Well, well, no, I'm not going to talk about it, but I have thrown myself into the Sunday column today um, about something incredibly serious, which is my club Celtic. And they are flying regularly and also this week of the Palestinian flag. It's a subject matter that nobody really wants to go close to because it's moving towards the sound of gunfire and nobody is really ever advised to do that. But I don't think I've got any choice now. Uh, This is my club. Um, It's the, the brand and the badge that I've carried around in my travels. And, you know, seeing them doing that was quite painful a couple of days ago. All right. I've just got one other thing um, that I just wanted to, to query Roger on before we get to the serious part of our guest is, Rog, you, you were posting pictures of you in a convertible on social media this week. Can you explain that? You kind of look like, I don't know, it was sort of like you were auditioning for a I sort didn't of... See this. Oh, yeah, on Instagram. It's Rog it's and... Instagram. Oh, no, I'm not on the it's, ground. It's, I'm not on the it's ground. An app. It's an app. <laughs> I've heard of it. I've heard of it. <laughs> Are you, you look like Rog? Sort of, I don't know. You look like you're in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels or something, Rog. <laughs> that is that is very funny. No, that's my little mini uh, John Cooper Works, the convertible. So it's not a, a super mega sports car, but you know, I was sitting there, and all the glamour was obviously provided by my wife, who did look great. I have to say, she did. Um, yes, and uh, we we were told to go up to the Finestra because we had to have a discussion with some clients that needed some help. So. Uh, we get in the car and went up and had a lovely lunch with some lovely people in a restaurant you know very well, Giles. Well, they're having a rethink on the Bond selection. I think you've just put yourself <laughs> in the mix. <laughs> well, there is a precedent for really. Scottish James Bond, so you know, I guess it could work. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, Roger, listen, why don't, you, uh, why don't you let the listeners know who we are about to talk to? Yes, I'm thrilled to uh, introduce uh, Tobias Jones to Are You Not Entertained? Tobias Jones is an award-winning author from the UK who uh, writes for various publications, including The Guardian, and is a very avid sports fan. He currently, like myself, is a Brit in Italy. He lives in Parma. Uh, He's got a young family that is growing up there. Uh, They, too, are sports fans, but they are sports fans like all these youngsters are in a slightly different way. Uh, Toby Jones is an Everton fan. I believe his son, despite best efforts, has become a Liverpool fan. And Toby, I ran into Toby through some of the work that I was doing, an article I wrote, and he has helped me edit the upcoming book, you know, the Sports Perfect Storm. So he has had to put up with the grumpy, moody Scotsman on a continual basis for about a year. Well, a year? Jeez, Charles, James and I are four or five years in. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't, we, uh, why don't we bring Toby in, Roger? What do you say? Absolutely. Hello, Toby. Well, thanks for having me. Welcome to Are You Not Entertained? Thank you for doing this. It is a big thrill for all of us. And I want to kick off straight away because I think it's very important. Tell us a little bit about, you know, your relationship with sport and fandom and your children's fandom. I think that puts the context on everything we're going to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I've been obsessed by particularly football and rugby ever since I was very young. My old man, his his parents were Welsh-speaking, Northern Welsh, and so he took me to the Arms Park, the old Arms Park, to see Wales at least once a year. Even though I was born in Somerset, so I have this sort of strange hybrid thing where... I was born and brought up in England, but when your father takes you to that stadium and and you see the passion of the Welsh fans, I saw Jonathan Davis' first cap when he had long, curly, sort of 80s mullet. 
it just embeds within you. You know what it's like. And I loved playing rugby. I played fullback, so I was always, you know, tackling and catching and tackling and catching. And same with football, really. I mean, who knows? You know, the mist of time, it's hard to remember exactly why you become a fan. If you know, if you grew up in Somerset, there's only Yeovil Town, and I'm afraid that wasn't, you know, high on my radar. And in North Wales, all the all the kids had Everton tops and Everton started doing really quite well. I thought, oh, I remember that team. They're the all those kids on the beach that I was playing with. And you know, so my connection to Liverpool is very tenuous, but it's this deep sort of metaphysical bond that is partly the bond with your father and so on. Toby, I, I'm, I'm intrigued. I, I too am a son of a, a Welshman who lived in England. And so my pilgrimages were also to the Arms Park. Never forget your Welsh and that whole brains bitter thing was, was uh, steeped in me. But we also had the connection. I was interested about this nature of fandom is that you also grew up in Somerset, which had quite a famous cricket team, the county team, whilst you were growing up. Did that resonate for you as well because of the Bothams and the Richards and the Garners or not so much? Yeah, no, it did. It did. I mean, I wasn't any good at cricket. I used to sort of play wicketkeeper and drop the ball a lot. But I went to see Botham in a charity match and he got out a second ball for naught and the, the bowler pretended to drop the ball because he realised, hang on, this is a charity match. All these people are here to see to see Beefy. <laughs> And and the bowler dropped the thing, but the umpire gave him out. So it's a bit of a damn squid. But yeah, I mean, Somerset cricket in the eighties was, as you as you know, it was it was fantastic. And and like a lot of kids, we used to just play with a tennis ball. And did you have to? I, I'm intrigued. Sorry, we're going to have to just shut the others out for a bit. You're a, you're living in England. You're you're in Somerset, and there you are going to the Arms Park, which is often people would say the beating heart of Wales. It's right in the city centre. Did you feel that Welshness just course through your veins because there you were coming over the bridge, that first seven bridge and coming there? Was that for you the sort of the epitome of fandom or did it come later with, with Everton and football? Yeah, no, that was it. I mean, I was obsessed by rugby and we used to go over that seven bridge from Somerset up to Pushelli. And so I was very familiar with it. And there's this famous letter I wrote to the, the World Rugby Union when I was nine. And, and I think my dad still got the letter. And I said to them, I just think you should know that I'll be ready for selection very shortly. And, you know, I'll be <laughs> boosting your ranks. And I, and I got this lovely letter back from the chairman of the World Rugby Union, or at least his secretary, that said, that's great, Toby. We really look forward to, to, to you coming back. You might want to find a club first to represent and, uh, you know, I'd, I'd got a passport photo of myself and I'd sort of inked in a beard around my face and done a pretend question of answer as if I was a 25-year-old who said, you know, greatest match. And it was when Wales beat New Zealand 79-3 or something, you know, <laughs> although all those childhood fantasies. And for me, it was like that was my time with my dad. And, you know, he he, he wasn't into sport at all. He wasn't into rugby, didn't, didn't know the rules. And... Yeah, it was just, there was something very special. And I remember the first time we went there, there were hundreds of men just urinating on the terraces and rivers and rivers of urine just going down the steps. And, you know, it was a sort of vaguely well-educated lad who was told to, you know, only pee in the loo and wash your hands. This was like, this was another world to me. So that's kind of exciting as well. And then, you know, I just remember, I just remember all the games. I remember, I remember seeing them and yeah, it was, it was wonderful. So, Toby, so give us a similar uh, sense of your connection with Everton and games that you went to watch at Goodison and the, the kind of players you watched and, and who kind of really caught your attention. Well, the strange thing being, you know, from Somerset and so far from Liverpool is that it was almost always away games. So I'd go to a lot of games at Southampton, Millwall, West Ham, Spurs, uh, you know, cup games in the West Country. And... I think there was a side of me that, I mean, I I know they were great in the early, mid-80s, late-80s, but they were still the underdogs to Liverpool. You know, I remember the the Milk Cup final against Alan, you know, against Alan Hansen, against Liverpool, where Alan, Alan Hansen clearly handled on the line. And that sense of injustice. And Everton were the underdogs in those years, even though they were very good. So I love, and I still do, you know, I'll always support the underdog. If it's not one of my teams, I'll always support, you know, Samoa against the All Blacks or whatever. So I think I, I like the fact that they, they were the underdog team in a way. But, I mean, my favourite players, I loved Peter Reid. 
I just there was something really? about him. Yeah, I, love play, too. I mean, I loved I loved Inchy Heath. I loved Andy Gray. I mean, Andy Gray changed that team because here come this sort of bruiser Scott who was going to put his head on anything. That famous goal opened the the scoring gets Watford when the keeper actually caught it and it probably shouldn't have been a goal, but Gray, you know, got up and headed out of his hands. Trevor Stephen was an incredible player. I love Neville Southall, Kevin Radcliffe, you know, Kevin Sheedy, for me. You know, these guys were were really genius. And I think, you know, when I, I still watch the video sometimes or watch Howard's Way, the film, and I think, you know, they could hold their own. It's, it's, it's skillful. You know, I think English football is often sort of, we think that the 80s was the dark ages and there were, you know, a lot of rubbish pitches and average football. But some of those, you know, Peter Reid was a beautiful player. And when when they lost that cup final to Man Man United, and and Kevin Moran should have been sent off for the foul on Peter Reid, I cried for I cried for days. You know, it's bonkers. <laughs> you look back at it now, but yeah. So listen, uh, Toby. When you know we're now talking a little bit about Everton, those years led up to the start of the Premiership. You will remember, uh, younger listeners won't. That in those days you talked about the big five in England, of which Everton was one. And just before the Premiership was set up, there was some start live games that started getting shown that, that included the big five. And the success of those led to everything that we now know for the last 30 years. How much does it hurt you, Toby, that for some reason or another, Everton were on the bus, the original bus, and now they've fallen so far behind. You know, it's just, it's so painful to watch. And, you know, there are all sorts of reasons for it. What fascinates me about it at the moment is how a dreadful board can affect what happens on the pitch. You know, because um, I think Moshiri has put in a lot of money. You know, he, he, hasn't, he hasn't not been generous. He's invested a lot of dosh on a lot of players, but the board is so amateur. And I find it fascinating that that a board can affect, of course it affects, you know, recruitment inevitably affects the, the starting 11, but there's something about a club that if it's badly run at board level, it just makes such a difference. And, and Everton is very, very, very badly run, I'm afraid. So yeah, it's sad. It's very, it, it is very sad. Toby, uh, what do you think then about, this new 777 proposal. You know, 777 is a company we know relatively well. They have become quite controversial in the last six or seven months, and I'm sure that famous article has been shared all around the Everton fan base. But, you know, as a case study of glorious old club, Dixie Dean, Goodison, past glories, now maybe getting a saviour, in American private equity capital, you is what I call the purity of, of, of sport. How do you feel about, you know, as you said, you've got a crap board just now. They're coming in. They may have a lot of money to spend. You may have some of the good times coming, but they're big, cold money. Yeah, I don't like it at all. And I don't think I don't think it'll be good for the club at all. I'm not an expert as you guys are, but instinctively i hate the idea of being just an old nag in in a stable of lots of other clubs and i know of course it makes financial sense because then you know there's an economy of scale there's all sorts of things you can centralize blah 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 i don't like that for starters and actually you know when i look back to before moshiri took over we were a better club when we had no money when david moyes for 10 years was the manager and he was buying players from Sligo Rovers for 20 grand. You know, there's something about not having the money that is romantic. I mean, you know, and most football fans, as you know, are hopeless romantics. And I I don't even expect to win anything. I would like to, but I would just love a club that's well run and that the people in the board are passionate about that one club and... You know, it's very rare that happens, obviously. Herbie, I'm really sorry to break it to you. Um, 
you've become a Fulham fan. I'm really sorry. It is contagious. And some people do catch it every now and again, but that's that's <laughs> that's, that's what being a Fulham fan sounds like. I don't expect to win. Be nice to win every now and again, but I don't expect to. Yeah, I mean... The- yeah, but Everton's a serious club, Grant. I mean, yeah. like... It's yeah, all right, like- all right, Diddy. You back in your box. <laughs> I mean, the other thing, I think something that sort of... You know, my passion for football at that level decreases every I mean it's an addiction I know it's an addiction and it's I I I've worked a lot with people in addiction I recognize the symptoms but it decreases every year because when I look at the players that I've loved in in recent years so Jolyon Lescott or John Stones or Romelu Lukaku or even Ross Barkley who you know most Evertonians don't like now but these players who, you know, were young and promising, exciting, and each of you know, all these players, and they just get sold on. They just get sold on. You know they're never going to stay. So you're just a stepping stone. So, Toby, I'm, I'm intrigued by this. You've been an Everton fan all your life, and I think you're in your early 50s now. So when is the zenith, do you think, for fandom? When is it, that? what's the, the corollary between, you know, you have your childhood heroes who you can still do the team sheet from when you're 11 years old. I suspect we all could. And then when does that start? Because I'm really interested in, in exploring this whole nature of fandom with you anyway during this chat. But let's start with that. When do you think there is a the, the dip starts and why? And you know, it's funny. I don't know that I would even call it a dip. It's it's a bit like sort of a love affair. You know, if you've been married for 25 years, that love evolves and it might not be that, you know, epic, you know, romance and tears and arguments maybe, or but it evolves and deepens. And I kind of think those, I wouldn't weep on the sofa for five days like I did in 1985. But I think, Fandom for me is, is is now just as deep, but it's very different. And I think it's deep because it teaches you about loss and about grief and what you don't have anymore. And so that aspect of it interests me. And that's what, you know, a lot of fans from places like Torino or even Man City, you know, you think of Man City 20 years ago. I mean, it was, Everton's a bit, the modern Man City, if it's going to go wrong, it does go wrong. You know, we haven't been relegated two or three times, but the fans of those clubs sort of were were deeply wedded to those clubs, especially when they get relegated. That's what I find fascinating, that it's not just about winning. It's about the tough times. And, you know, the older you get, the more sadly you understand about the tough times. So so my follow-up question then, as you observe the football fandom, you, under, you, you see it through your old age, do you think that youngsters on the terraces now have that same passion? Has What I mean, has the fan experience changed as we live in a digital world? Or do you think young boys and girls still have that um, sort of passion and ardour that we perhaps all did 30, 40 years ago. Do you think it's the same? No, no, I don't. I don't. I mean, my son is football obsessed. And, you know, he goes to the stadium with me. We've got, we've got season tickets at Parma, where we live. Top of Celia B, by the way. But it's different. It's very different. And, you know, you guys would know more than me why it's different. But I think it's it's partly if something is never on TV, then that is the moment. It's like the House of Commons. You know, the country heard what, you know, the politicians were going to do in the House of Commons. Now it's trailed a week before and, you know, the debate's all been had before someone announced it and everyone knows it's going to be announced. When you have matches that all start at, you know, in Italy, 3pm on a Sunday afternoon, there's this concentration, there's this intensity to it. You can't see it on TV, you can't look at your phone. So you're so present in the moment and it's just so different. But, you know, life evolves and... Um, let, let, let me let me follow on in this because Giles has entered a, a great point here. You know, you wrote the book about a different category of sports fans, ultras, which are, you know, the hardcore Italian fans. And, and Giles is bringing up this point now about how Gen Z and certainly Gen Alpha are completely different. I mean, you're probably best placed having read, written that book and, and having your boy, who's a Liverpool fan, to try and put some sense into whether this industry of sport or, and football has understood where we're going and what the risks that it's uh, it's facing. 
Yeah, I mean, what amazed me about the ultras, and I, I realised this very quickly when I was sort of travelling all over the country and, and interviewing them, a lot of them didn't even know who the players were. I mean, some of the ultras were obsessed by the players, but most of them, you know, I'd turn and say, who was that? And say, I don't know. I don't care who the players are. I'm here to support the shirt. I'm here to support the colours. So it's almost as if players are so fly by night and in inverted commas traitorous and mercenary nowadays that actually the most faithful way to support your team is to ignore the players. And so if you're a football fan, to me, and you're ignoring who the players are, and I can understand why they do it, but if you're ignoring the players, that's already a very different thing, isn't it, to to what we had in our childhoods when you were obsessed by the players. And it's just, it's a different way of living the stadium experience. You know, a lot of them will, will actually watch themselves rather than the game. You know, they, they will admire the, the terrace and, and the spectacle of the terrace. It's almost like a rival spectacle. And, you know, of course, because we're in Italy, spectacle is for spectacle and pageantry is central to the Italian way of life. And so it's almost like they say the football's boring. The football's boring. So we're gonna we're, we're gonna be a better spectacle than what we see on the pitch. So a lot of people will turn around and and see what's going on. Toby, this is this is such a, a fundamental point to a five-year-long debate that we'll be having on this show. And it's so fascinating to listen to because there are two things at play here. The reality of being a fan, of being a, a fan of a, of a sports team, uh, whether it's something you grew up as a kid or you've kind of adopted because you're in Asia or whatever it may be, is what you just said. The players, by and large, are actually irrelevant. They have their moment in time when they come in and some of them burn so brightly and then flame out. And sometimes they get injured. Sometimes they leave in acrimony. Sometimes they spend their entire careers at a club and they become part of the fabric. And, you know, there isn't a, a football club in England where you can't go on a match day and see, you know, the left back from 1978 doing tours for guests and having a drink in the bar afters. And it's part of the fabric of the club. But the reality is exactly what you just said there. The players don't matter because they will go for good reasons, for bad, and you're left with this club. And Roger and I have gone backwards and forwards about this on the show. He's absolutely right about the direction of travel and how the Gen Z and younger are Ronaldo fans or they're Messi fans and they want the shirt with the name on the back no matter who they play for. So I'm really curious to, to get a sense of your thoughts on how this goes from here. It is, is catering to those fans the right thing for a club to do, for a sport to do, or should they be actually hang, clinging on to the importance of the club and the team and the shirt against all the odds? I would say the latter, but I'm a, I'm a hopeless romantic. And, you know, I can see, I mean, I know Roger very well. He's written this amazing book and I know where he's coming from. And I know yeah, financially I, yeah. it doesn't make sense to say what I'm saying. But I don't know if you saw the statistic recently about the number of a boy boyhood fans playing in particular clubs. So when, for example, uh, McTominay scores two late goals in the 94th, 96th minute to turn things around and, you know, the manager might have got sacked the next day and he rescues it and he's beat, he goes into interview and he says, you know, I've been at this club since I was, whatever, six years old and I'm a fan. You know, that gives me goosebumps. And that, you can't bottle that. And I understand all the financial arguments but the financial guys want those goosebumps as well. And you can't have your cake and eat it. So I think in some ways, if you have boyhood fans or girlhood fans in female football playing for the team, it creates a different connection with the terraces. I think players who are truly fans play a tiny bit better. They're more passionate. And look at basketball football. You know, Howard Kendall, you know, of course, went to manage there. And Basque football produces, as we know, the best managers, many of the best players. And that's because they've got a very, very deeply embedded sense of belonging and rootedness to the team, the club and the, the attachment to that. So, you know, I would always prefer the latter, but I, I know it's not a logical thing to say. Toby, we had on the show um, 18 months or two years ago, a young man who has now won two Palio events in Siena, which has never been done before by an overseas um, family. And listening to the sort of sense of feudalism and fandom and belonging, do you think, A, that Italian football 
and sport in general is peculiar to Italy? Or do you think that all of this um, sense of tribalism in sport comes from a feudal past in Europe where the sense of being a vassal and belonging to a not just a, a feudal lord, but a sense of colour and belonging runs very deep within the human psyche that is this is a sort of a sort of offshoot of those days or am i being far too historical and romantic no i think italy is is different i mean i think that tribalism obviously exists throughout the world and that sense of belonging that a sports team whatever sport it is can can give and that's why the Ryder cups are interesting because you know it introduced an element of patriotism to an individual sport but Italy is very, very different. You know, it's famously schismatic. It was famously united late. It's, you know, people that campanilismo, they're attached to their bell tower. You know, that's why more than a third of all, all the grape varieties in the world come from Italy. You know, it's over 500 of 1,300 grapes. They're all from Italy. Italy's got more surnames than China because it's con- constantly differentiating itself. And I used to go to like a tiny town and say, oh, can you introduce me to, to the ultras, you know, town of two, three thousand, and say, do you want the Curva Nord or the Curva Sud? Because even there, they'd split <laughs> up into, you know, and had an argument. It's like, the, the you know... The people's popular front of Judea and all the stuff at the Monty Python. <laughs> exactly. It's like, it's like, it's like the, you know, the island place with two people on it that's got three churches because there are the Baptists and the new Reformed Baptists. And, and that's what Italy's like. And it's that sense of the borgo, the contrada, the quartiere, the suburb is so keenly felt. And that's why the Paleo and Siena are so picturesque and fascinating. But that happens in in Italy more than anywhere else. You know, I I, I used to travel a thousand kilometres for an away game with Cosenza, which is the team I was following, with guys who weren't even allowed in the stadium. So whilst we were in the stadium, they would stand outside just clapping and saying, I'm from Cosenza. I'm from Cosenza. For 90. And that is bonkers, but it kind of it's understandable. Because that's the thing that really interests me enormously about as we look at the changing nature of fandom, is that we all grew up in some way or another finding a badge, which was a team or a country in the case of rugby or a club in the case very often of, of football and other things. And yet it seems that the younger generation are spending much more of their loyalty to individuals and not the badge. And that seems to be a change that maybe social media has had a, a, a huge effect on, which is the loyalism seems to go between player going to different clubs rather than the club being the, the king. I wonder if you had thoughts on that. I think that's true. You know, lots of people do do that. And you can see it from the numbers, can't you? You know, as the, as the social media doubles as Messi goes there or Ronaldo goes there. But I think still sport is one of the very few places that we get that sense of belonging and belonging is what people are desperate for and you know they don't get it from politics anymore or most people don't get it from politics uh for all sorts of reasons religion neither exactly just about to say exactly you know a lot of people don't get it from from religion uh you know village halls closing many pubs are closing people long for for a sense of rootedness so so whilst you're right i think people are attached to individual players i still think sport is able to give that and the clubs that are really clever use that and play on that and develop it when when there are clubs that are just sort of you know borrowing a a social media strategy from halfway around the world it doesn't work but it takes it takes clever people who are deeply embedded in the society to to understand why a club is 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 different and, and what's special about it Toby, can I ask you to spend a little bit more time with your experiences with Ultras? Because that is an award-winning book. The Ultra concept, I think, only recently has has now come in to the, the UK with, you know, the famous T4, you know, the, the spectacles, as you said, and the Corvée and everything like that. I, I, I don't know whether I've told you this story, but this is, this is a true story uh, about Parma, the team you now follow now. And I don't know whether you know Cesare Frambati, who is the capo Ultra at Parma. Uh, he is a cousin of my wife, so so um, it's uh, he got a daspo that you know the thing you're you're not allowed to go to the stadium because he's had some incidents as an ultra in the past. This is this guy is the nicest man you could ever come across. This is the point of the story. A gentle giant would break his back for anybody, but when he goes to that stadium, he is the boss, the boss of the boss. 
And um, I'll tell you this funny story. I was in Parma about a month ago and in a family meeting, one of the mothers uh, came to me and she said, look, Roger, I'm slightly concerned. My son, who is about 14, is getting attracted to Parma and to the Curva and to become an ultra. And like all Italian mothers, she was very concerned. And of course, I'm not the guy that you should ask about this because my kind of like mischiefness is such that I'm going to lay it on rather than take it off. So I said, um, oh, look, it's just, that's the way it is. Boys will be boys, you know, like, uh, but anyway, don't worry, Cesare, the cap old trap will be there. And she says, that doesn't make me feel any better. And she played me an audio, Toby, that had come from the Regina fans, which is the Reggio Emilia team next door, where they were talking about waiting for Cesare himself to beat him up, which they actually did do. Unfortunately, they got the wrong person, the, the innocent neighbour, the, uh, <laughs> the innocent neighbour, and uh, they took him out into the fields around Parma and gave him a good booting and left him there. And this mother uh, obviously had got access to this uh, audio, which was the threat that they were going to do it again, but do it properly this time. And she was panicking. And I had, all I could say to her was, this is football. This is the ultra culture. You know, your boy is already lost to you. It's over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's true. You know, none of them denied that there's there's a violent edge to it, that violence is an integral part of being an ultra. So they're very upfront about that. And that's why I found them fascinating because, you know, I write a lot about true crime and there's a lot of true crime within the ultra movement. So uh, drug dealing, uh, manslaughter, even murder, missing persons. So it's very edgy. And yet at the same time, the sense of hospitality and welcome and solicitude towards an outsider is extraordinary. So you've got this incredible contradiction, like you say, you know, your wife's cousin who's who's, who's charming and lovely, but would probably, you know, hold his own in a fight against the dirty oh, big guy. Big guy. Yeah. And, you know, ultra means being ultra. It means being beyond the norm. It means being an extremist or a fanatic. And I didn't want to write a book that was a sort of a jacuzzi, you know, pointing the finger, because almost all the reporting about the ultras in in Italy and abroad is you point the finger and say, these are baddies, let's lock them up. And I'm not interested in moralising. You know, I've I've done that earlier on in my career, and I I, I don't want to be a moraliser. I just want to tell the stories. And... And actually, the more you hang out with them, the more you realise a lot of these, they're mostly blokes, you know, demographically over 90% are, are, are blokes, but there, there is quite a big female element as well, about 10% female. And um, a lot of them are very vulnerable lost boys. And the ultra movement started as a far left movement. You know, it's now largely far right, but it started as a far left thing. The names were the brigades, the partisan brigades or the fedayeen, you know. Yeah. All these, all these movements, and actually, a, a lot of it was young boys who had lost their parents, or had no father figure, or who were sort of street urchins who suddenly, within the ultras, found this. You know, they found their father figure, they found a purpose, and they found a sense of belonging. And of course, you know, as we know from all sorts of anthropological, sociological studies, in a group, when a group is formed, all sorts of things start happening. One of which is that group can often start worshipping itself. So you see in the ultra movement that instead of chanting in favour of the football team, they start chanting in favour of themselves. So they don't, they, you know, they'll stop chanting only, not all curva, but a lot of curva. They will stop chanting about the football team and start chanting about themselves. Irriducibili, the, the, the Lazio group, you know, famously headed by Diabolic Fabrizio Piscitelli, who was whacked, you know, a few years ago. Yeah. You know, they used, stories. <laughs> yeah, they used to sing about themselves. So, so you get this sort of sense of it's very similar to religious fundamentalism, fanaticism, that there's acute scapegoating. So the heretic is scapegoated or the rival team. They start turning in on themselves and, and like I say, worshipping the group rather than something more transcendental, be it a deity or the football team. And yeah, it, it, it's a fascinating, fascinating movement, how it sort of morphed over 50 years into something that is is now far right. You know, when you look at the curva from the 70s, 
everyone was dressed differently. It was this incredible carnival thing. The ultras were almost all in their teens, maybe early 20s. Now the head ultras are all in their 60s. You know, might, there might be a few, few 40, 50-year-olds, but, you know, they're in their 60s. And they've got names like Il Barone. They're called the Baron. You know, it's not that sort of scallywag <laughs> element. They are uh, banking through getting hold of parking sort of tenders or burger contracts, or especially through ticket tapping. These guys are earning tens of thousands of euros yes, every they are. month. It's huge businesses. So, you know, if you're someone who's pretty unemployable and probably never held down a job, but you can see 10 or 20 grand through muscle, you're, you're going to make sure you are muscled up. And it used to be someone would get a few slaps and then the knives came in and then the pistols came in. And suddenly certain ultra groups are indistinguishable from the mafia. So it's it's a fascinating move. And yet at the same time, those same ultra groups do an incredible amount of charity work. Anytime there is an earthquake, a landslide, there's flooding, there's drought, there's COVID, whatever it is, the ultras are always on the front line. So again, there's this extraordinary paradox of, you know, good and bad mixed in. And I, I love sort of complicated, contradictory stories. So that's, <laughs> I, I love them for that as a, you know, as a storyteller. You know, Toby, um, being a football fan and having been around football fans, not so much at Fulham, I don't think there are any Fulham ultras, but being around football my whole life, what you described there is so easily understood by anyone that's been around football, but it must sound so utterly ridiculous to anyone that hasn't. You know, the, the, the dichotomy between the two sides of these of these groups, you know, and I mean, the Barmy Army sing about themselves, but I don't think anyone's been whacked a cricket, at a cricket match by the Barmy Army. We may get fed up with the trumpets and stuff, but talk a little bit about how you went into that experience, your mindset when you went into writing this book and how you came out of it. Because I, I, I can't help but think you must have been, the two must have been very, very different. Yeah. I mean, I knew as soon as, it wasn't my idea. It was my brilliant editor, John Riley, who suggested the idea. And as soon as he said it, I was both elated and very worried. You know, I was elated because I was like, that's such a brilliant idea. You know, it's right on my turf, which is I write a lot about communal living, I've set up quite a few communities. So I love the belonging thing. I just want to say that that's very modest of you, Toby. You alluded it to it earlier about addiction. You are doing so much charity and volunteering work for somebody that's an award-winning author, I think that needs to be said. I want to make sure this podcast doesn't pass without people knowing that. I know you a little bit, and it is extraordinary what you do. Uh, thank you. So that is partly, I think, why I could see the vulnerability in these criminals, you know, because I've lived with uh, ex-offenders for years. Um, they lived in our family house. So so that's why I wasn't judgmental and why I found them interesting. But soon after I sort of decided to write the book, Chicho Bucci, the one of the head ultras of uh, Juventus, took his own life, jumping off a huge fire duct outside Turin. And I thought, blimey, that's a story. And it turned out he had been informing on the Juventus curva to the secret police about the far-right infiltration. He'd been infiltrated by the Indrangheta, the Calabrian Mafia. So I went there, did a lot of research, and wrote, wrote a, long, a Guardian long read. But originally, not there, but in one or two other curva, I did something very stupid looking back, which I, I tried to go in undercover. So my cover story was that my grandfather was a famous goal scorer of this team back in the 40s and had emigrated to Britain. That's why I was an English person coming to this team. And I'd researched the players and found someone, you know, who'd scored 20 goals and, you know, ended up in England. So that was my cover story. And partly I don't like the dishonesty. And secondly, they rumbled me very quickly and it got quite tasty at one, one time where they surrounded me and said, you better tell us the truth of why you're here. So, you know, I didn't like that and I realised that was stupid. And so what I then started doing was I would just go to their headquarters, which is easy to find, knock on the door and just say, take me to your leader. And, you know, a very, you know, these arts groups are incredibly hierarchical. The hooligans were, you know, comparable, but were sort of very beery, fairly egalitarian. There wasn't that very hierarchical structure that the ultras have. So, you know, take me to a leader has an effect and they would take me to the leader. And and I would then explain what I want to do. And invariably, would they would let me travel with them. So 
I, I changed tactic and I've got to say, I became very fond of them. You know, I became really fond of them. I mean, I was particularly connected to Cosenza because Cosenza, which is was when I started writing the book in Serie A, so the, the Italian third division, never been in Serie A, completely off the grid in terms of sporting prowess. But their ultras had been, you know, had made history uh, because in terms of their songs, their choreography, in terms of the charity work they'd done, one of their lead characters was a Catholic priest who tried to promote peace through different ultra groups. They occupied buildings confiscated from the mafia and opened up these houses for the homeless and for refugees. You know, they were doing amazing things. So I hang out with them a lot and the various things happen. So, you know, the first away trip I went with uh, to them was to Reggio Calabria, not Reggio that Roger was talking about earlier, that's Reggio Emilia, big Palmer. Reggio Calabria down in the toe of the Italian boot. Cosenza hadn't won there for 58 years. And the first game I went with them and they won one nil away from home. And they grabbed me by the, the lapel, I'll never forget it. And they said, right, you have to come to every game with us as if I were there's kind of lucky chart. And, you know, you need a lot of luck as a writer. And that year, slowly but surely, they started winning games. They started going up the league and they just got in the playoff places. So they had the, the quarterfinal and the semifinal and then the final to go into Serie B. And they won the semifinal, the, the, the final and got into Serie B. So then... I was very embedded with them and very fond of them as a bunch of guys. And, you know, they were scallywags, but yeah, it was was great. So, so Toby, tell me this, that um, you've clearly got balls the size of a rhinoceros to do this and, and an extraordinary thing to do and to work with the, the undercurrent, the viciousness, I would imagine, that, that exists with the ultras and just the... Uh, I, 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 can't, I can't imagine. So what then led you to go to the next level down, which is to work with Roger uh, and, and working on a book in terms of that real deep viciousness, that strength. I just, I mean, you're a glutton for punishment. Yes. Yeah, so Juventus is a constant source of great stories. And I was fascinated by the Plus Valencia scandal, which is their sort of capital gains scandal that was that accounting sleight of hand where they could appear, make the budget appear much better than it actually was. And one or two people, you know, when one or two people keep mentioning the same person, say, you've got to speak to Roger Mitchell, you've got to speak to Roger Mitchell. So I thought, okay, I'll get hold of Roger Mitchell. And, you know, he had a clarity of speaking and a bluntness that's great for a journalist. Because a lot of people, especially explaining financial stuff, it can be pretty dense. And so I just thought, well, that's that's great. And then Shortly after that piece came out, I was in Cornwall, where, where Roger lives, and thought, well, let's go out for a beer. And he was telling me about this book. And I do a lot of writing, teaching. You know, I do a lot of manuscript mentoring with aspiring writers. And I just thought, that's a book that's got to be written. The world is crying out for a book that is in that beautiful sweet spot between sport and finance, between everything we've been talking about all the romance and the belonging, blah, 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 but also the numbers, the nitty gritty, what's happening to sport, what's happened in the past, how's American sport different to European sport? And so, so yeah, we just, we, we started working on the manuscript and it, it's it been great. Um, I mean, it's painful. I don't know how Rogers found it, but, you know, editing a book is, is not an easy thing. But it's, you know, it's 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 going to be published very soon and it's it's unique. There's nothing else that I've seen that's out there. So Well, yeah. I think I think I think that Grant and I would like to buy you more than one beer and, and congratulate and uh, and celebrate and also to to thank you for you know, Roger took a little bit of well, we all took a little bit of time off over the summer where I suspect you were very busy with it. And um we're genuinely very excited about seeing it. I've seen the first draft of the first chapter and um, I think it could become quite a Bible for the sports industry. Mm, yeah. I, I'd and, just like to say to answer your question, Toby, it has been painful, but in a way that, that is right because, you know, somebody of my age and my personality is going to be difficult to change. And I had a, a belief that the Sunday columns that I did were already pretty decent and you, in your way, basically said, that's not good enough, mate. 
And like uh, uh, the nightmares of having your emails arrive with the line, I've just made a few changes <laughs> and I put the word on tracking and it's fucking full of red. <laughs> but what I tell you what's lovely is to work with someone who's very thick skinned because my innate fear when I work with aspiring writers is I'm going to upset them. But actually the most useful thing is not to upset them, but to say in a, in a unpersonal way what works and what doesn't work. So if I've worked with people who are very sensitive and, and take offence very easily, it's a nightmare, it's a minefield. The, the, the joy of working with you was that I don't felt that you ever wanted anything other than excellence. So if I said that's not good enough, you knew it was no personal agenda, you know, towards you and and it was just, you know, striving for excellence. So you gave me the green light to be blunt. <laughs> yes. No, it was great, Toby. And hopefully when it comes out, people like it a little bit. Uh, and, you know, we, we've had uh, the, the good luck to have Jim Kerr do that amazing, amazing foreword, which is great. And, and uh, Mr. Williams is going to add the epilogue from the finance guru point of view. So it's all in the family on this particular show today. Yeah, yeah, it's great. No, it's great. Fantastic. You know, Toby, this has been such a such a joy to get the chance to talk to you. We've been, as Giles said at the top of the show, we've been looking forward to it for ages, and um, you didn't disappoint. This was this was such an enjoyable hour and whatever it is now, and we can't thank you enough for taking the time to uh, to come and sit and chat with us. I mean, God knows you spent enough time with Rog, so putting up with him for another hour for the benefit of Giles and I is greatly appreciated. Thank no, you. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Thanks, Toby. Take care now. Speak soon. Cheers, fellas. Thank you. Good luck with everything. Let us I hope Everton win all their games Palmer. this season except the ones against Fulham. Yeah, thank you. Oh, that was great. Thoroughly enjoyed that, Rog. Thanks for setting that up. What a super guy. He really is a super guy. And, and, and you know, sometimes we say that a lot and, and we're just being polite because somebody has given us time to come on. But this is truly one of the really nice guys. As you can tell, a sophisticated historian, a great writer. He's got that turn of poetry and some of his phraseology. But I'm telling you, he's dedicating so much of his time to poor folks that are drug addicts or that have got off a boat in Lampedusa and made their way up to Parma. And he's trying to teach them English before he... It's just unbelievable. And, and you know, I, I thought he was great on there. I thought I said very little because, as I said to you, I was just listening and enjoying it. And I had nothing to add to what he was saying. Well, if we finally found out the key, Charles, we need to get Toby on every week just to shut Roger up. What do you reckon? <laughs> I think I think we have at last cracked the code <laughs> we've been searching for for four years. <laughs> well, listen, our thanks to uh, our thanks to Toby Jones for for joining us. It really was, as we, as we just said, uh, a wonderful hour. And um, and of course, as always, our thanks to you for listening. You can uh, you can follow us on social media if you're not already doing that. You'll find us uh, very simply by going to I, I refuse to call it X. Going to Twitter. Uh, and typing in at entertained R, that's the word A-R-E. You'll find me, for the time being, on there, uh, at T-T-M-Y-G-H. And you can find me, Giles Morgan, at GilesMorgan71. And you can find myself at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Rog, I hope uh, there are no ultras waiting outside your door to give you a good bathroom. If they are, point them next door. (laughs) (laughs) All right, fellas, see you next time. Take care. Thanks, Giles. Take care. Bye-bye.